0: Welcome, everyone, to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel, part of the New Books Network. Today, we are talking with Filippo Marsili about his book, Heaven is Empty, a cross-cultural approach to, quote, religion, unquote, and empire in ancient China, published by State University of New York Press. Filippo, thank you very much for agreeing to talk with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Sure, the pleasure is all ours. And uh, I want to start things off by um, inviting you to talk a little bit about yourself, your intellectual trajectory and the way you came to the study of ancient China in general and to this topic in particular. Okay,
1: okay. I I was born in Rome where I grew up and did my high school and undergraduate. And actually I wanted to study classics, you know, my own uh, culture and civilization. And then I don't remember exactly why, for what reason, I decided that perhaps I should take a break and try to do something completely different so that I have a different perspective on my own culture, being born in Rome and so on. So I take a class on, I remember it was on classical Chinese, and it was on Zhuangzi, the philosopher of the butterfly. I loved it. We were very few students in class, so it was very easy to, to establish a nice connection with the teachers. And I kept on studying... Uh, Chinese, actually I was studying Central Asia and art history. Then eventually I became a sinologist with always the idea of going back to Rome, like an intellectual. And then when I was in grad school, actually I studied both, ancient Roman history and, uh, and Chinese history. So uh, what I work on actually is not just China, is the way as someone who was born and raised in Europe, uh, I conceptualize and think about China and how in the process I learn about myself. So I'm interested in particular in uh, uh, how the classical tradition has shaped the way we study the past in ancient China. And uh, this reflexive approach is what I like a lot about what I do because I always be you know, myself and I'm interested in seeing how I look at things, how I think about you know, Asia or China.
0: Sure, and that definitely um, involves um, you know, your approach to the comparison?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I that uh, I don't uh, call, it, it's comparative in a way, but uh, what it interests me is the way we think. I, I'll make an example. Actually, I became interested in this project when I was working as a photographer. Because I was a photographer before being in academia. I uh, started academia quite late. And actually I was in uh, uh, southwest China. I was in uh, Yunnan, And uh, I was a student, but I also was working on the side as a photographer. And uh, I started to take pictures going around the villages among minorities. And suddenly I realized that as someone who was born in Rome, trained in Western art, the way in which I would frame reality, I would freeze a particular scene, was shaped by years and years spent studying the classics. For me, you know, what a human body was, how I recognized people interacting, what I had uh, in mind was my own culture. Instead of basically knowing what I wanted to uh, uh, take pictures of, I was projecting my tradition, my expectation on, on what I was seeing. And I'm like, oh, probably I'm doing this also as a student. I have some ideas, some expectations, something that I consider, I consider beautiful or meaningful, and I want to project it on the kind of China that I need to be so and so. So going back as an academic, I started to work on the way we think. And so, what we, and especially as a photographer, you know, you have always to choose what to include in a frame, what in a picture, what to exclude, and what moments, what postures what are meaningful. And I like, oh, I'm doing this as a historian too. So, uh, before you know, engaging with ancient China, I wanted to see how uh, my background, cultural background, as an academic, as a human being, influence the way I was looking at China, even the question I was asking or, or the way I was including and excluding things that I couldn't understand. So it start, So this kind of is comparative in a way, but I'm more interested in the way we think and how uh, it's a lot, a lot about myself as a subject who studies how the background I have is going to influence the way I study China. And then I think that once I'm able to trace back all the conditionings, the ideas, the prejudices or expectation I have, it's easier to reconstruct, I don't know, what anthropologists call anemic vision, the point of view that is actually produced by the people I'm studying and matter for them. So this is, I call it more reflexive than, than comparative because I cannot help but being Italian or having my background. And I want this background to be open and, and visible so that I can actually learn.
0: Sure, absolutely, and I think it's a reflexive move that all of us have to do at some point when we engage in <laughs> comparative work. Um, but it's not easy, right? Um, so it takes time. Uh, but, but you know,
1: in the process, I think I, I learned something. I always say, I don't know if I'm learning much more about China than what you know is available out there, but I'm truly learning a lot about myself or helping like me to uh, approach, a, let's say, foreign subject, asking uh, questions that help us really proceed and go on.
0: Sure, sure. Right. And I think this is very visible in, in how you approach your, your main concepts. Right. So uh, religion. Right. It's and I'm using the same scare quotes as you in the book titles. Right. So um, that appears to be one of the most important, if not the most important concept here. And in the introduction, you provide a lengthy and very, very interesting uh, description of your approach to religion and what it actually means. Right. So um, I was wondering whether you could tell us how you understand this concept in relation to China and the Mediterranean world.
1: Okay. Uh, first of all, probably, you know, specialists know that we don't find a word that c- can be translated as religion in ancient Chinese texts. There are many terms referring to to different uh, rituals, different aspects of this what we call the sacred. But this idea of religion that we keep on talking at different levels, academic and not, is a Western idea. Not, you know, the Asia doesn't have the sacred or something similar, but the way we conceptualize it, we use it. And I don't want to become too bookish here, but you know I'll uh, quickly say what are the ideas that we associate with religion and I believe condition the way we study you know, non-European realities. The first idea is that religion has a lot to do with identity, that uh, the sacred provide us w- with an idea about what we are. And in ancient China, was not like that. Religion was not a main part of identity construction. Another idea is that... Uh, mm, especially studying ancient empires, that in order to have political unification, you need ideological unification, which is achieved usually uh, by imposing one point of view about the sacred, and it was not so in ancient China. So uh, one of my point is that there was the sacred, there were rituals, but the empire was possible without a unified idea of religion. And for us, this idea of religion unified is important because it's connected to European history, from Constantine, Theodosius, and to the Reformation, the idea that having a common the sacred helps you having shared morals. So the idea that the sacred is the foundation of morals, and it wasn't so in ancient China. Another important element that I think we keep on projecting on ancient China is that ideas about religion must be consistent, uh, systemic, so, the defining our attitude towards religion helped us understand our attitude towards other aspects of reality. It wasn't so. So, in a few words, uh, religion, like, as a problematic term, because the sacred in ancient China was not necessarily connected to identity, was not exclusionary, meaning that one attitude towards a particular deity didn't mean that didn't exclude the possibility of having relationship with other. God. So, in another way, a, a polytheistic approach. But the difference between the multitude of spirits and ghosts that we have in ancient China with the idea we have about politism, that these different spirits and ghosts were never organised in a uh, sort of a systematic pantheon that represented uh, the, the complexity of society. We see in China, uh, some religion discourses about the sacred excluded from political discourses and religion was more connected to the private sphere. Sphere, so was not religion was not part of discussions about political identity, uh, cultural identity, and so on. It was more private or local. So, I for me it's important to talk about this because before I said before I want to go back and study ancient China. I want to understand the kind of expectations and trace back their. Uh, formalization and their origin in Europe and see how these ideas questions are are affecting the way we study ancient China and also the final question was going back to the photography example what do we include under the category of religion what is part of religion you know in, in the West we have particular ideas that not necessarily uh, correspond to what was valuable for the ancient Chinese so for the reason, you know, the first part of my book is about trying to understand what we have in mind when we think about religion and what we are creating or projecting onto ancient China when we study it.
0: Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, I think it's it's very apparent when you know after doing this this uh, reflexive move, uh, you move on to uh, you know thinking about the novelty of the empire as a form of unified uh, government. Um, And the way, you know, it is connected or relates to the concept of religion. And, you know, by that point in the book, and specifically in the introduction, um, the the reflexive path is already established. So, um, you know, in talking about uh, issues of rituals and practices, you know, and their constant change, um, we can see how they factor into uh, one another. Um, but, you know, I, my, my follow up question to, to this is, um, you know, how can we think about the rituals and the practices and or ritualistic practices um, in the confines of the empire and whether we have to change the way we look at the empire to understand what's happening both in China and the Mediterranean world uh, at that time?
1: Okay, so uh, the, the starting point was the fact that in, in uh, Europe, in the ancient Mediterranean, we had the religious cult of the emperor. that was an important factor for the unification of the Mediterranean. The fact everyone can look at a statue of the emperor and associated with, in a way, the uh, sacred nature of the empire. Natural in, in in China was quite the beginning, even as an undergraduate, right, it was quite difficult to find the same because we don't have images of, of, of uh, emperors. And, and, you know, em- images produced by by emperors, like the Terracotta Army, for example, were supposed to be for not for the living, you know? Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I was trying to think, you know, I, I don't think if I live in the Mediterranean, in, you know, in Northern Africa or in uh, in the so-called Middle East, you know, I could look at the statue of the emperor, imagine myself as part of this commonality, but as a, you know, as a subject of the Chinese empire, what, what would I have in mind? It was quite difficult because China was huge, uh, the emperor, the capital was remote, and, and, uh, and it's clear that the connection between the center and the periphery was not as streamlined uh, despite you know the creation of a very effective system of communication was not that uh, easy to imagine, a- and also another important thing that we forget when we study how you know, the, the unification of China under the Qin and the Han is that China had been centuries, and it's pretty clear from those historians who start to write the history of the unified empire that the memory of the past was lost was not clear uh, in the early Han what kind of tradition had to be chosen in order to create a new legitimacy. And it's pretty clear that even though eventually the so-called Confucian faction would prevail, it was not obvious that the ideological choice of the first ruler of the Han would be the Confucian one. And as we know, the Confucian will create a rhetoric according to which, Uh, the moral rule of the country was achieved by following the examples contained in the ancient texts. And actually being involved with local rituals, with spirits and ghosts, uh, was a distraction, actually made actions less moral. So we see an idea of uh, this sort of uh, symbolic uh, uh, role of the emperor, who's an example, who rules the country, from the capital and doesn't need to get involved. What I think I not noted is, is that actually uh, this idea was connected with a political and fiscal idea of the empire. Basically, <clears throat> maintaining the, the emperor at the center of the empire, uh, uh, associating him with a symbolic um, function also implied that local centers of power, uh, economic centers, didn't want the intervention of the state of the emperor, as, as they were in the past. So basically, I think that, uh, especially Emperor Haudi of the early Han, he was trying to uh, resort to pre existing uh, religious uh, traditions to uh, affirm, establish an idea of the empire that is based on the connection between the center and the periphery and the direct intervention of central power at the local level. Basically the idea of of an emperor who embodies cosmic forces, who represents military prowess, who travels and pacifies directly the country without uh, delegating or letting intermediaries to basically be between the center of power and the periphery and the the common people. So I believe that emperors in the early Han were using local tradition that would be eventually uh, surpassed, overcome and marginalized by the Confucian rhetoric. They were using them to establish this sort of uh, centralizing idea of power. And there were sort of particular rituals that really depicted the emperor as over extremely powerful military leader who Traveled; they didn't need intermedi- inter- intermedi- intermediaries, and uh, and I think at the beginning of the Han, since uh, the Confucian so-called Confucian tradition was not established yet, was easier for emperors to resort to these different traditions that came from particular areas of China. The problem is that uh, the sources were written by intellectuals who were either hostile or let's say ignorant about these traditions. And so, basically, it's quite difficult to have an idea of the kind of rituals uh, uh, emperors were using. You now, we hear a lot that many emperors, early emperors, especially emperors that envision the state as very strong and centralized as being superstitious, as being obsessed with immortality. Actually, by looking at archeology span and our sources are not canonical, it's, it's possible to reconstruct a more coherent uh, usage of rituals by early emperors, the fact that they were looking at models that would be rejected by the Confucians. Models that were for a centralized state, for fiscal control, for the centralization of all the important uh, uh, productive activities. And so w- I make the case that in a particular period of Chinese history, particular rituals from particular regions were instrumental in, in, uh, in uh, Promoting and legitimizing a form of rulership, a form of power that would be delegitimized by the confusion. So centralized power, a strong center, and direct control of the resources and of the land. And so in my book, I try to uh, reconstruct the fragmentary uh, sources, the fragmentary account that we have in the hostile sources by complementing them with archaeology and excavated manuscripts. And I think we can reconstruct a pretty, a pretty coherent vision of what the early Han Emperor was trying to do. And we shouldn't forget that the main historian of the Han Dynasty Sima Qian, uh, had a very problematic relationship with the Emperor whose uh, glory was supposed to celebrate because they had a very famous like falling out and the Emperor forced the historian to castration. And of course we can imagine that you know the, the, the historian was conditioned by this, uh, this event. <laughs>
0: Sure, sure. Yeah. And actually, it's very uh, good that you mentioned it, because my next question was about your sources and the way we see from them the relationship between Sumatian and uh, the emperor and, you know, how that tension, um, you know, can be seen or maybe influenced and we can't see um, his writing or the records uh, kept at the time. Right. And, you know, it's also a matter of of, right point of view. uh, Right. So who's writing? Yeah. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. To be more specific, my book is not about uh, a particular historical period, it is, but it's about how the sources we have. Uh, are reconstructing narratives about power struggles, and, and the interesting thing is that I think the, the, the kind of approach I tried is that so far my colleagues were trying to make sense, often trying to make sense of local rituals, of non-canonical uh, sources, of archaeological evidence by relying on uh, the Suji, the first you know historical record we have about. That. I make the case that Simachan clearly was not familiar with a lot of those traditions he was now uh, called to 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 describe we shouldn't forget that the ruling house of the, the hand the leo family came from the south from the state of chu which was considered exotic and foreign by people in the uh, central area so in the tradition religious tradition, ritual traditions there were um, practiced by members of the Leo family who did not belong to the background of Simacen. So I said, you know, probably it's not a good idea to try and reconstruct these rituals, these uh, sources, these um, artifacts we find in tombs by relying on what Simacen wrote. Probably we should try to do the opposite, try to make sense of the fragmentary or hostile or negative accounts that we have in Simacen about how these ritual practices by complementing them with what we found in tombs and or in text like uh, the answer or the manuscript from our way and actually makes much more more sense and i think that the fight the reaction against the attempts at, at establishing the monopolies that were carried out under hawdii are mirrored by by a lot of uh, ritual traditions that Howdy uh, was trying to recover. And at the same time, the kind of debates are echoed in discourses about mythology, uh, about literature, about uh, the landscape, and so on. It seems pretty clear that the big, 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 big thing was, do we want a big state? Do we want to uh, give up uh, local uh, control over resources? or do we accept a strong state? And I think the compromise that Hawaii was trying to achieve was, yes, we want to centralized economy, but I'll allow, uh, you know, regions, mm, villages to, to maintain their uh, cultural and religious diversity. And I will be traveling around the country taking part in, in acknowledging these different rituals, as long as that justify the kind of political uh, vision, economic vision that I have. The thing is that after uh, Haudi's death, uh, the let's say the Confucian faction prevailed, and of course, his attempts were described as incoherent, as conditioned by his folly, obsession with immortality. But I'm, you know, he reigned for more than 50 years. I doubt that. Uh, He was so clueless, especially if we consider that the only, uh, the most important politician that worked with him, the one that basically followed him throughout his career, how it was famous for getting rid of his uh, politicians, was the one who was in charge of the economic and political reforms. He had a plan and was trying to uh, justify it or legitimize it also through ritual means. It didn't work and people followed him completely rejected his model, even though we can reconstruct it through archaeology and so
0: on. Yeah, exactly. Right. So um, I think um, by now we have some sort of idea of, um, you know, the approach and the tensions. So um, how about we go into, you know, into the chapters and um, in chapter one, you offer a cultural history of the application of classic and Abrahamic ideas of tradition, knowledge and morals to uh, early Chinese realities. And then you provide a revised, uh, you know, or alternative interpretations of notions such as religion, myth, ritual, the divine and so on. So, um, you know, I was very curious about uh, more details regarding the cultural history um, that that you provide. And maybe also um, if you could give us a gist of your interpretation of these core concepts, right? So we talked about religion and and myths and rituals so far, but, you know, maybe kind of positioning them into uh, the way chapter one um, approaches things.
1: So, uh, in chapter one, first of all, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I I try to deconstruct this idea of religion as we conceive it, especially more recently, uh, when people say after you know, with the end of the Cold War, after 9-11, we tend to, when we talk about the world, we like to associate uh, like collective agency with particular ideas about the sacred. And so religion has become fundamental to make sense of the world. And I think it is a mistake in general, but it's also is a mistake if we talk about uh, pre Christian or non Mediterranean realities. Because, as I said, religion was not connected to identity. And also, briefly, as I say, these other elements in religion as a morality, as a foundational uh, source for, for, for shared uh, behavioral norms. And in Asia, religion in China was not the source of morals, actually, it was the opposite or the same. And the the idea that region must be, uh, uh, um, uh, ideas about region must be organized in a philosophical and legal uh, system. The idea that every part uh, makes sense in in the whole. And and also this doesn't apply to ancient China. But then I wanted to, this is the the deconstructive part of it. Then I wanted to, still to find some ideas that could help me in 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 categorizing the material I had before recovering concepts that I think make sense for the authors of the sources I'm studying. And the ideas that I use, they are quite current in the world of ritual studies or contemporary studies in religion, are the ideas of myth and ritual. But myth uh, interpreted as uh, just narrative a narrative about the past that is supposed to in a way make sense and justify uh mm-hmm. norms that we adopt today not necessarily having to do we you know with heroes and gods but narratives about the past that we consider foundational and so i try to apply the, this uh, this category and choose those narratives that in my sources uh have the function in my opinion and then ritual just I interpret the ritual in a very very broad way. I could talk about hours about that, but then going back to my to my uh, to my usage, uh, ritualized uh, performances or, or actions that were supposed to justify the extension of the Chinese empire in <clears throat> space. In other words, the narratives that I call mythological were used. Those narratives were used to make sense of the the new reality of the unified polity that China represented under the Qin and the Han vis-à-vis the past. Traditions, even though they were uh, not as in touch as we imagined with their own past. And ritual, those mm, uh, ceremonies that were supposed to provide a meaning, justify the way the new kind of power was occupying the land, reorganizing it and redistributing power. So, in other words, myth narratives that dealt with the relationship between power and the past, ritual, those acts or ceremony or performances that explained how the current power in its relationship with space, with the the landscape, with the resources. And so I divided my group in in, um, in these big, uh, let's say, narr- uh, sections. Then, going back to the constructive part, I realized that at least for the historian I was working on more than anyone else, uh, Samachian and the Shijin, uh, what we call religion, the sacred, uh, was organized into, into groups. One was the, all those uh, mm, uh, let's say, notions about the supernatural were, were in a way uh, described in the classics. And that uh, in the end were important, because not because of the object of worship, uh, but because of the kind of uh, behavior that they would enforce and establish among the practitioners. In other words, the so-called Confucian ritual, Li. So not no important because of the object of worship, but because <clears throat> establishes, celebrates social hierarchies, notions of propriety. And according to this vision, the direct intervention of the supernatural, or the extra human, as I call it, was not important. Actually, could be even uh, problematic. And this is a, mm, mm, something that at least the author of the Books I write on considers important and fundamental to establish a moral uh, reign, moral kingdom. Then, according to the, the same author, Sema Chen, there were other kinds of, of rituals. They were not described in the books that Confucius had chosen and promoted. They were regional, they were about which we didn't have written sources necessarily. And that all involved the direct intervention of spirits and ghosts. And and of course, the intervention of spirit and ghosts, according to Simatian, would bring into political action an element of uncertainty and confusion and probable immorality. And so I think I found out that according to Simatian, uh, uh, ritual actions by by his ruler could be uh, Assessed and uh, and uh, appraised and judged by applying these, these categories are actions that are consistent with what is written in the books uh, uh, recommended by Confucius and his uh, and the students of his tradition, or are traditions that are connected to local rituals and imply the direct intervention of spirits and ghosts, and so. In other words, in Chinese, I call them Li and Si. Uh, different categories of actions that made sense for the author of the books that I, were, um, I was focusing on. So, in other words, these are the two categories, are those that replaced in my narrative the categories connected to our notions of religion I was talking before. So, the first part is, let's say, uh, the constructive, the second part, is trying to recover the logic, the criteria of inclusion-exclusion applied by the author of the sources I was working with.
0: And, you know, that also connects to um, to the ways in which uh, the political power is interpreted and disseminated and, you know, responded to uh, in many ways by you know, the the people who are close to the emperor by Sumatian himself, but also, you know, by people who are in, you know, living and, you know, spending their days in the empire and um, having these rituals at hand and and performing them. And that's what chapter two is trying to to do in in my perspective. And you do emphasize the relationship um, as seen in the records between ritual, text and historical memory. And I was wondering uh, what uh, do these relationships look like, specifically when it comes to memory, text, and what you described as uh, the Li, the ritual.
1: Uh, It's pretty clear that, that at least according to Simacene, and also quite surprising, because Simacene, you know, we know that according to the Confucian rhetoric, the Zhou dynasty uh, was the paragon and the actions of the rulers of the Zhou dynasty Uh, had to be used as examples by by all moral rulers. But actually, Machen tells us that he was going over the fragments of the documents connected to the Zhou dynasty, which he agreed had to be taken as models. But he said, uh, it's difficult to make sense of them, because the language is quite different from the language we use today. And even when I think I understand, the context of those rituals, the object they were using, uh, and the action they were performing don't make any sense to me. So it's quite surprising that you know, for Semachian writing in the, in the second in the first century BCE, the joke didn't make too much sense, and their memory and lesson was almost completely lost. For his followers, people who came after you know fifty se- years century, was Clear what the Joe meant, and would become clearer and clearer as you know the rhetoric of the empire would be established. And so, basically, I think that what Symmachian is trying to say, and it's also problematic to uh, to to establish what uh, Symmachian really thought because he couldn't express himself in a way because the texts uh, you know went through interpolation and losses, and and also. Uh, because we tend to interpret uh, his, let's say, his uh, historiographical approach through the so-called letter to An, and it's not clear if the letter was, you know, a, as an example of historical impersonation or was actually written by him. But this aside, it's pretty clear that Simacin says it's just, uh, it's pointless to try and recover the memory of the past and establish the particular memory of the Joe as our model. Because time, five centuries, and and we don't understand the source. What we can do is, it's clear that we can establish an emotional connection with these characters, with these uh, rulers, with these ministers who had an idea of the community, had a moral idea, and we can emotionally connect with them and be influenced and inspired by their example, the the difficult choices that often they had to make. And so for him, historiography is a a way to establish this connection with the past and to choose those examples that can inspire us in making political choices. So for him, is this memory, emotional and moral, established with the past, that of course goes through uh, the literary elaboration. So it's a kind of relationship with the past that implies a, a very, a uh, high level of education uh, and, uh, and training. So it's an elite kind of vision. Whereas what uh, his emperor was trying to do is to establish uh, different connections with other constituents of the country, local communities, and uh, develop the rhetoric that Basically, an emperor doesn't need intermediaries. He can directly connect with the people by rituals that make sense for for everyone. And uh, and so for more than memory, for the emperor, what uh, was important was performance, the possibility of of immediately uh, legitimizing particular actions or particular political choices made immediately sense for, 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 for I say for the common people but but it's very difficult to understand what kind of connection there were between them for the common people even though we you know he liked to travel and to sneak out the court Probably often this rhetoric of popular religion was used to counter the position of the official at court that were always telling him you know, Look at the old books. Uh, moral uh, emperors uh, were not that active; they stayed, you know, uh, put and were able to run the country by examples in other ways. They were not appropriating all the resources and demanding direct taxation. We often forget that, that when uh, Liu Bang uh, defeats, you know, uh, after very various events at the Qin and established the Han, he controlled only one third of the country directly. Two thirds he gave to the old, those old families that had been dispossessed and marginalized by the Qin. And I argue that this was the compromise that allowed you know the, the Han to last. Some areas were directly controlled, but he did not dispossess, he left things in place for those Fundamental aristocratic groups; they were had a big role in his victory against Shangyu uh, know, and the Chinese.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and that you know speaks of the emperor's um, foresight um, to say so, and the way he um, he conceived of his own power, and the way he wanted to connect with, you know, what we think of common people through these, um, you know, rituals or through an understanding of, of practice. And,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, now, I want to say that, you know, I, I remember I got quite, quite interested in uh, this emperor because it's very popular, you know, because he ruled for so long. There are so many stories about him, but opinions about him are, can be so different. You know, he was crazy effective, he was also almost a romantic figure, he was completely inconsistent. Then I was reading uh, Tang Dynasty poems in which, you know I don't remember exactly you now off the top of my mind, this point in which I said, oh, I wish I could go back to the time of Hangudi when even an emperor could get directly in touch you know, with gods and goddesses. So the myth of Hangudi as, a, as a, an emperor who had a direct connection with the divine, with you know supernatural forces and mysterious forces survived uh, the popular level survived in known you know traditional circles and this fascinated me then looking back at uh, the sources he was actually interested almost obsessed with all kind of super you know what is contemporary and critical superstitions or uh, local cults or popular religion and i think he played that card uh, as a way to escape or, or have a, a free hand in dealing with court politics, relying on non, uh, let's say, non, non-canonical uh, rituals to, to to carve for himself some freedom at times, and also interesting that his popular cults would be recovered by even his successors, whenever uh, rulers had to deal with personal losses or personal pain or personal tragedies, as though the, the let's say, you know, I call it like this now the official Confucian version of the religious role of the emperor was not enough to provide an emperor as a human being with relief, personal relief. It was too abstract. That in the end, when in crisis, emperors would resort to you know those kind of old rituals and superstitious things, much more powerful and effective, and were connected to you know, regional traditions or the, the South or the East Coast. <laughs>
0: right right yeah and i think also the the sacrifices the si are important right in this um in this story and you know we've been talking about the the ritual which is you know translated from li but um i think uh, the the conducting of sacrifices um you know it's it's worth mentioning here and you do um have a different approach to in the, the conceptualization of the two um, so, you know, I wanted to kind of probe around and, and ask you to say a little bit more about, um, you know, the notion of sacrifice as well.
1: Yeah, see. So, uh, as I mentioned, Hamidi really was particularly fond of, 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 of these sacrifices that were not described in the old classics and that entailed a form of direct contact with the, with the, with the supernatural some of the sacrifices were connected to the Yellow Emperor that Sima Qian was trying to establish as the first, uh, let's say, cultural uh, leader of China, completely devoid of uh, supernatural aspects, were asked for, uh, for the Emperor and the so-called Fan who were, you know, surrounding him at the time. The Yellow Emperor was particularly important because he achieved immortality. Uh, uh, through some alchemic uh, practices. So it, there is a lot of ambiguity in the sources because, you know, again, we, we translate uh, sacrifice of ritual, it's not clear we were referring to what I call li or what I call sur. So. And uh, what I see there is that uh, Di, the emperor, was quite interested in selecting or promoting or recovering those rituals in which uh, the emperor was not conceived as a passive uh, recipient of tradition and example, but someone who the world needed in order to be The Someone who was able to defeat enemies of the people, was able to, to, to regulate flattened mountains, open a path, quell demons, and whose power was connected to the power of um, cosmic forces. And so he liked those rituals in which these elements of the of the emperor who travels on his war chariot and doesn't have enemies and is in keeping with the uh, will of the people so for him uh, sacrifice often meant to establish this connection to establish the this model of the ruler in other cases and you know i didn't develop a lot that in my book even though i probably deserved another chapter it seemed that uh, the emperor used uh, religion as a way to be, religion meaning these sort of traditional, uh, local traditions and, uh, and local rituals, to escape from the court. And, and it's, um, it's quite interesting, that it's all, uh, here and there in the source we find his express, expression of his desire to be by himself and, and be in the woods or be somewhere else and leave behind even his family. And it's also interesting that, you know, the Shan the, the sacrifices, there's a lot of literature about them, and we rely on Sema Chen and other sources to reconstruct these sacrifices that were supposed to be the, the most important point, the most meaningful point of the reign of Han Wudi. But actually, it's interesting that uh, it's, not, it's not a very seldom that actually Ang Wudi performed these sacrifices by himself. He left everyone behind, and at the end, only had a, a charioteer with him. Yeah. And this charioteer actually is, was the son of the general Bojubin. And also if we read the sources, we learned that the charioteer died after three days of the financial. So basically there were no witnesses. And so I, I don't have enough evidence to say that, but it's also for me fascinating to see religion or sacrifice for the emperor as a way to be alone, <laughs> to, be, to be an individual or to be part of the cosmos or to be in touch with other traditions. Uh, 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 almost as though the emperor was trying to fight back the official role that everyone was trying to to impose onto him, you know, taking from different past traditions. You know, of course, it's a literary suggestion, it's fascinating, but for me it was something that it was worth noting in the sources, this escapist element of sacrifice. You know, there is the political one, the emperor uh, as the as the ruler and the one who keeps uh, the country pacified and in order, but also as an individual, what times needs to you know, get lost, as I say in the final chart.
0: Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. I actually have a question. Um, four questions after this one uh, about specifically this. But, um, you know, it is very, um, very rare, right, that we find and sometimes learn in, in school about these modes of escape or, you know, the, the the emperor as not necessarily being under constant supervision, but as an individual, you know, or a representative of an empire of a, or of a state that... Goes into uh, you know the wild or goes on a trip to connect with with other forces or you know meet um, other rulers um, and it is not followed by this um, you know kind of um, mount of people right. So uh, this uh, this is very rare, or at least I didn't find it in in many sources. And um, you know, I think um, as as we progress into chapter three, uh, we also find more about the hegemony of monotheism, right? That that you mentioned, and um, you know, it, and it's both an Abrahamic and non-Abrahamic historiographical uh, tradition. And you know, this kind of um, monotheistic view on what the the, the the morals should be and what the emperor should be. what the, you know, the gods should be, um, uh, most of the time determines our own readings, right? So I thought um, here, then specifically in chapter three, uh, there was a very interesting comparison that you you do between fortune and the role of fortune in Polybius and the role of heaven in the records, right? And the way the emperor connects with the heaven. And, you know, I wanted to hear a little bit more uh, about this.
1: Okay. Yeah, thank you for, for the question because then I noticed from you know the first reaction to my book that, that it, there were some probably my, my bad some, some misconception about the way I use you know uh, the Abrahamic model. I'm not saying, of course, that, that my colleagues you know in all fields are uh, implying that in ancient China we can talk about the model of religion that was Abrahamic. No, absolutely, of course, very few of my colleagues would do that. But. is that even though, I say, even though we get rid of the label, we still project onto ancient China some Abrahamic uh, modalities. And I think like, the idea that uh, unification, political unification comes together with ideological unification, and then we have an empire, you tend to create a, a system of ideas that as a whole is going to help to create harmony. And I think that, I argue that this idea uh, is the the fruit of of, of our European history and contemporary history, but the idea that political unification is the result or goes hand in hand with ideological unification was not automatic, was not conceivable. And and so, uh, automatically conceivable. And and so what I try to do is, is, let's try and look at, and the ancient sources without assuming this theological model, the idea that yes, we have un- political unification, it means that there is moral unification, there is that the world makes sense as a whole. And what I try to do in, the, in, the, in the chapter three is to see to look at two two historians. who dealt, you know, Polybius and Smash, who dealt with you know different forms of unification, that of the Mediterranean under the Romans, and that of you know the the, the, the areas that we call China today under the Qin and, and the Han. And what I found, I think I found in Sima Qian, is that he is, you know is the person who is looking at old books, uh, trying to establish a new narrative of the new empire that is also in keeping with a tradition that he now considers uh, fragmentary and almost completely lost. And he finds a lot of mention of heaven, Heaven was expected to be the last solution, the explanation of everything, you know, and whatever we're projecting onto it. And and this also gives the the title to my book, that Simacin realizes that that heaven is there in the sources, but it's very difficult to uh, apply these, uh, to recognize these uh, expectations of moral unity and coherence in... The actual uh, polity that the, Han, the Qin and the Han established is his hypocrisy. And he realizes that the unification of China was the result of expediency, was the result of, of shrewd behavior, was the result of, of backstabbing, and that at least in his own time was impossible to live up to the model that they found in the sources. And what I noticed that at least uh, Sima Qian in the books that deal with the uh, unification of China, especially the biography of Liu Pang, the, the first emperor of the Han, whenever he mentions heaven, is always ironic. It's never to, to define what heaven is, but also, oh, we don't understand, it's problematic, oh, must, must be heaven. And all in you know, many circumstances in which he uses heaven, is really ironic. When there is something that is clearly uh confused, immoral, surprising, counterintuitive, say, oh, it must be heaven. You know, often it's been his famous sentence, you know, is when he says, you know, it's so strange that someone who was born in a, in a you know in a almost God forsaken area, a poor guy from the someone who no land managed to become the emperor o- o- of China. must must be heaven, he said. You no, know, must be heaven. And, and then, if we read the the, the which is a huge work, uh, very complex, we realize that for Simachan, so heaven meant chance, experience, and hypocrisy. And also in the famous sense you know, someone who no land who becomes the emperor. I focus on the no land, and I argue that probably Liu Ban was chosen as the leader of the of the. Um, alliance of aristocrats, because he was the only one among them who didn't have his own aristocratic background and his own land. So basically, he could be the leader of a coalition and would be less problematic <clears throat> because no one would see him as an aristocrat, and so he would be the perfect leader for that compromise between a state of centralizes, but also leaves aristocratic lineages with the privileges they had before. And I think Chen had understood that. So he's continuously talking about the emptiness of of Liu Bang as a leader, who just would repeat, parrot, whatever his uh, associate would tell him to say about the reasons why he was an emperor. So I think Chen is brilliant in understanding that he, of course, he had to play his role of official historian, but he found himself with an established tradition to a certain extent, even though it was clear to him that it was not obvious to interpret it. And he uses heaven in an ambiguous way, on and hand referring to the moral connection between political power and universal morals that we find in a certain way in the ancient sources, but also pointing at the hypocrisy, the violence that had brought China to become one. So, and, uh, I, and also I argue, going back to you know, the comparative or uh, cross-cultural model, that because of our expectation of unity, we kept on projecting onto Semachem's notion of heaven all these expectations of ideological, cultural, and moral unification, that and himself did not see. We just projecting onto it. For you him, know, heaven was in the end a sort of a rhetorical residue of an ancient who didn't make too much sense at the time, and he uses it because it's there and it's powerful,
0: right? And then he also, you know, um, makes use of, of memory, right, right. Uh, or what he kind of uh, remembers.
1: And a, you know, mm-hmm. for him, it was clear that emotionally, it was possible to to be influenced, inspired by, by 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 historical characters who had particular qualities, and he envisions. His work as then of resuscitating in a way or making available these examples through you know, the literary means. You know, uh, some scholars argued that since he was a eunuch and he couldn't carry out you know, ancestral sacrifices personally, you know, to maintain the connection between the living and the dead of his family, ritually was incapable of doing it because of his castration. The literary means was the only one you could use to maintain the connection between. Uh, his ancestor, real ancestor, cultural ancestor, and, and, and the future generations. So, in a way, his work replaces the rituals that you know, the good, the good Chinese would carry out to maintain the connection between the living and the dead. It's a very fascinating uh, interpretation, and I think in part is true. Right,
0: right. I mean, it is very fascinating, and you know, I mean, at least in in the European tradition, uh, writing, and I'm sure all over the world, but, you know, I'm just more familiar with that, that, uh, you know, writing, you know, having, you know, written poetry or having written uh, different uh, works of, of of literature will maintain or maybe assure immortality,
1: right? So... Um, yeah, it seems a concern so much, and originally and culturally. Another interesting thing about you know the, the, the function of the historian when, when, when in China is that what we call historians in ancient China in addition uh, to recording the past, they also had to record uh, uh, the heavens, what happens in the sky, you know, all kind of phenomena. So what, what the relationship was just recording events in the past and in the present. And it is the idea that, that there was a connection and the, in the could, could 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 teach us how to behave in, in the present because actually what have circumstances of the past could, could, could reproduce themselves and so the circularity of the experience not, not only like uh, from a, a intellectual point of view because you know by re- recovering the past uh, you know the past is always present but also because in, in the end the canvas where we are acting the cosmos, works according to the same rules and what worked in the past would be working today. So, this idea of of, of using the past to project uh, and shape the future in a way that is, you know, Feature of Chinese historiography. Sure,
0: absolutely. And I think, you know, in, in the past being used as a heuristic to understand uh, the, the present and the future is also apparent in models of rulership, um, right? And in Chapter 4, you do engage with the notions, uh, right, of time, myths, and, and memory. But uh, more importantly, um, you know, the this uh, interpretation of the importance of the Yellow Emperor as a model of, of l- rulership, right? So um, you do have um, three different uh, approaches to to this, and how they impacted the the rulership of Emperor Wu. So uh, you know, I thought that was um, a key moment in chapter four that that pushed your your argument further. Sorry, I
1: didn't hear the the last part of your
0: question. Oh, I was just asking about the uh, the, the three different interpretations of uh, the importance of the Yellow Emperor as a model of rulership for Emperor Wu. Oh,
1: yes. Yeah, so yeah. how... Uh, 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 mm-hmm. Yes. I argued, that you know, it seems that in that period, that, uh, the Yellow Emperor was quite hot. You know, everyone was talking about him. And and, uh, and there are a lot of debates and literary disquisitions about, you know, who was the, the Yellow Emperor and, and uh, what kind of rulership, what kind of power he represented. And for me, it's quite important that the Yellow Emperor is the protagonist of Chapter One of, of the Suji, the work of Sima Qian, and is the first ruler. It's quite interesting because the the, the, the narrative that Sima Qian creates about the Yellow Emperor is not confirmed or is not similar to anything else we find in that period. The Yellow Emperor was, you know, as I said, there was the the the. the, the Mortality was uh, connected to cosmic forces. Was a warrior. Was an alchemist. Would be eventually associated, you know, with uh, medicine, the body. And I argue that as a, an author, as a writer, uh, Simachen and his father were, were probably were in writing the biography of this. Uh, of this Yellow Emperor, who in the chapter written by, by Simachin doesn't have any supernatural powers, they are not important, and he's not immortal. He dies, and he has his tomb, and so on. Was attempt establishing a good model for uh, that eventually a, a good Han ruler would, would follow, and so he, in a way was adding out from the model he created all those elements that would connect the Yellow Emperor to. To, to, to spirits and ghosts, to the invisible invisible forces. Those kind of elements, according to Sema would bring into uh, political action uncertainty and probably immorality. So, and, and uh, in, in the chapter, I analyze how uh, the literary debates becomes uh, the stage in, in which different notions of, of power are, are debated and compared. Whereas, on the other hand, we have the the so much, yeah, trying to follow all these stories about uh, about the Yellow Emperor that were told by you know these uh, uh, alchemists, uh, Su, coming from you know remote regions of, of barbarians that, that of course uh, so much, and condemns. But in addition to the element of immortality, that again you know. Uh, might be seen as an escapist element, anti-family element, and when we see anti-family rhetoric, in in, in my opinion, it's not just anti-family as such, these anti-particular historic families that were uh, claiming particular privileges, fiscal privileges, connected to the attempts of the empire to tax them, to expropriate their, you know. The, 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 the monopoly they had on production of coins salt and iron so if the the, the the myth of the yellow emperor as a champion of immortality on the one hand yes is escapist is individualist but it's also anti an particular aristocratic position that was in that particular period a uh, reacting against the attempts of Hamidi's government to establish state monopolies and centralize everything. Uh, We forgot that Hamidi would be the first emperor after Liu Bang to really establish the Junxian control, the direct control of the state over all China. Basically, uh, breaking down, uh, removing all the, the, the heirs of those families that have been fundamental for the revolution that eventually uh, gave power to the leo family in Pa. so when, when we hear anti-family rhetoric now we do will be always conscious it's not just abstract families or you know a particular anti-aristocratic, anti-aristocratic not in general and anti- those particular families that didn't want the state to be so intrusive
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's it's quite obvious why they were so uh, against the state being so intrusive. But on the other hand, uh, right, so the, the emperor had uh, issues of legitimization, you know, in, in mind, probably, or, you know, the whole idea of legitimization of the Han, right, in terms
1: of... No, uh, no, no. Mm-hmm. It, 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 this term is pretty, I think, it's pretty easy to understand. You know, at the time, they didn't have media. So they had- and the the literary medium that was used by the courtiers, the people around the capital, people. And then they had ritual. And so uh, notions uh, about political models or attitudes were just played in that stage, the ritual one or the literary one. And these are, you know, conflated. And as you know, the the mythological narrative one and the ritual performative one that are all used by different actors, you know, in different ways. I try. What I try to do in my book is that you know I never talk about myth or religion in abstract. Whenever I talk about a particular myth, I try to refer it to particular sources written in a particular period, and connect them with particular political and economic context, so that those kind of metaphor that we're using can be translated in a particular cultural context. Because you know the problem with people like me who study religion is that it's so easy to use it in sort of meta-historical way. So these ideas or notions, even provisionally as universal. What I'm trying to do as a rule is always try to reconnect them to particular cultural and economic and political context. So I try, I, I think I don't do it, but I never talk about these things in abstract. So when we talk about models of rulership, in particular, rituals. I just talk about in the end, like twenty years, and, and, and the kind of literary exchanges or ritual exchanges that are happening in that period, starting together, economic reforms, uh, uh, clashes between uh, the state and provincial uh, elites, and how these were reflected the in myth and ritual, uh, ritual reform that were happening in those few years.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think by doing that, you also uh, avoid the you know, mental slippage that sometimes we all, you know, have uh, with using categories across temporal categories or um, even going meta a little bit?
1: Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, no, you know, especially if one reads, you know, the, the title of one book, and uh, I want to be an analytic on purpose, not using a sort of a Buddhist uh, kind of sentence uh, too, uh, uh, because I mean, those things exist and, and influence the way we think and ask questions and, 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 in, and create criteria of exclusion and inclusion when we think and study. So I wanted to, the first half of my book, I want to be as explicit as I could about all the conditions, the, the prejudices, the expectations I had If someone who was trained as a classicist, you know, a photographer in Rome in the, and I think, you know, probably the mistakes in my book and things would be updated and uh, surpassed, overcome. But I think that what I could contribute with was, you know, being open about the kind of motivations and the questions that led my research, you know, and, and try to put them at the forefront so that I could eventually, in, a, in the more honest, possible way, go back and recover an original, uh, ethnic, uh, uh, native perspective on, on those issues, trying to, you know, with their own words, to the extent to which that is possible, which is not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> certainly, certainly, yes. And, um, you know, besides what we, we've, we've talked in the past few minutes, uh, chapter five, uh, right, also drives home this idea, um, uh, or the tension between what you call a religion for the emperor and an imperial religion, and you know this is uh, this goes throughout the book, but you know chapter five and the conclusions uh, draw it home. So you know I wanted to to um, ask you uh, to um, you know tell tell our listeners oh, more yeah. about
1: mm-hmm. it. Thank you for this. Because, you know it, it makes me think of the reaction I often have when I go and you know, give talks around the world, and especially in China. Even though I'm explicit about that, and then I say, I anticipate the kind of, 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 of pushback I can receive for saying what I say. But nonetheless, I have this reaction often. What do you mean? No, there is no imperial religion. What do you mean the ancient Chinese didn't have a religion which is often seen as offensive to a extent to which it's seen as having no religion, means having no morals. Right. And I say, oh, but you say your heaven is empty. The emperor didn't have a religion. The emperor was always uh, practicing sacrifices. Is this true? I said, but that was his own religion. If anyone else tried to emulate, to ape the emperor and carry out this kind of to worship, heaven would be beheaded immediately. Uh, it's quite interesting that, that in, to me, that you know the term religion on job" arrives in in, 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 uh, in China at the end of the nineteenth century as a translation of the Japanese uh, term "shukyo," who in turn had taken their invented this term for the translation of the German and English term. The interesting thing that the major reformers of Japan, when they want to transform Japan in a few years, they look at the West. And then look at, you know, we have letters written by all the secretaries who went around uh, the world with the Japanese leaders observing Western you know, institutions, societies, and so on. And I remember this, and it really struck me, about someone observing uh, Christianity in the U.S. And they were saying, all these people, you know, worshipping this guy who was a criminal, you know, it's not respectful, though I don't understand why you know, Christianity can be so important, but something that's really important to us is that it doesn't matter who you are, you can be the president of the country, you can be an aristocrat, you can be really educated, you can be a farmer. They all worship the same God. They all carry out the same ritual. they all together, and this thing shapes the way they are. And since they're one as a nation, it's easy to carry out... Uh, with reforms, we should apply something like that, and eventually they created, you know, the, the divinized emperor and the, the culture of the emperor in Japan was fundamental for the for the um, for the reform that would transform Japan in, in a very short time. And after, you know the uh, the end of the First Sino-Japanese War. Uh, Qin Dynasty reformers were looking at Japan as an example. How come they were able to carry out reforms so quickly? Because they found this unity around this this sacred nature of the emperor. Probably the Chinese of the time said, we should do something very similar. And of course, in Chinese style, they said, yes, but we might have had this already. Probably we had a state religion in the past. They look back at the... Easter Han historiography, and they found uh, Dong Joon-shu and the idea of a Han religion. And of course, they worked on that. But my point is that, uh, of course, the emperor had, had, had his own rituals, but religion was not conceived, the kind of ritual, as, a, as working on a shared background, of morals, as creating the moral unification between the subjects and the the rulers. It's something that we connect that is natural for us, I mean, (laughs) us Europeans, because of the history of the Christian Roman Empire and the history of Christianity in, uh, in Europe. But the idea that the sacred, the supernatural, the invisible can be used to create shared morals and have a country on the same page is not universal and has a particular history in the West. So going back to, to, to your question to the, the religion of the Emperor and the religion of the Empire, uh under Rome and especially at the end of the Roman Empire, yes, we have an imperial religion, which was instrumental in the creation of uh, a community. In China today, the second is never used. I mean, actually now it's changing a little bit with the uh, revival of Confucianism as a word religion. It's another question. But in Asia it's not that automatic or natural to use the sacred and visible as a common ground on which to establish common institutions and tradition. So yes, the emperor had a religion, but was not a religion that shared with his subjects, who would be immediately <laughs> if they, <if> they dared. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. To, to worship heaven, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's all very, very fascinating uh, to to think about these things. But you know, I'm afraid we've taken a lot of your time. So no, my no, 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 no. Um, but you know, my last question regards uh, your next projects. So what are you working on at the moment? Oh okay.
1: Well yeah, I spent years you know working on the relationship between you know invisible pain. Uh, invisible and it's also invisible things like ideas, concepts, frameworks, and then I said I want to do something completely. You know, I could, cannot say refreshing, consider the topic, but I want I, said, I want to look at something completely different. So I'm now looking at the relationship between power and the body, punishment. How I'm looking at uh, both the narrative of of political power. In connection with justice and punishing uh, illegal, destructive behavior. Fascinating. So, um, my current project is on uh, on the relation between violence and uh, and, uh, and power, especially when looking at uh, torture and imprisonment, and also in slavery. The, the, now exactly I'm looking at mythological, of course, I know as my, my, I'm used to doing that, also, the continuation of our work, how in mythology, in ancient myth, the, the necessity of having laws was uh, justified in, in literary and historical sources. And then I'm comparing the actual application of laws in ancient China. We can do it because we have a lot of scary manuscript now. To the way laws were described in, in of course, in the legal texts, but especially in, in the historiography, so this kind of nails the This justification of rulers who, in addition to being moral paragons, also have to enforce okay. <laughs> <laughs> some punishment. Well, How uh, very that. interesting.
0: That is very, very fascinating, and you know I'm looking forward to to reading your next books and articles. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, I thank you very much for talking with us today.
1: It was a pleasure, and uh, I wish you a wonderful day or evening. Thank you. <laughs> <At> least...
0: <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Philippo. <laughs>
1: thank you.